agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hugs the government love. The government hugs the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland Area Attorney Jay Carson. Hey, good morning, Mike. Hey, Jay, how are you doing? I'm, I'm all right today. I don't have anything witty because I'm, I'm filling in last minute. But yeah, well, I, sh- I should mention. I'm, I'm, here for, I'm here what America needs me. They, exactly. We had a, Kristen was supposed to be joining me today and, and sort of running the show as she always and so ably does. And we do the show together and she had a, a last minute thing come up. And so I reached out, sent the bat signal out to Jay and Jay responded that he is here on a moment's notice, almost literally on actually on five minutes notice. I think it's not an exaggeration. And so uh, this should be, Jay, uh, an interesting experiment. It's sort of the freeform kind of, uh, I don't know, improv version of the like politics. Like the old school, like the way we used to do it. You know, just, exactly. Yeah. We don't you need, and me we, talking on the phone. You know, we don't need those stinking notes or anything like that. We can just wing it. Uh, so this should be interesting. But uh, we, we, of course, well, I, I, of course, look forward to doing the show again with Kristen at some point in the near future. We'll get back to that before a while now with with Kristen out this week and with with Trey uh, out for other reasons for a little while. Jay, it's uh, it's kind of a hearkening back to the early days of the politics, guys. Yep. Yep. So, so for better. Before for be- there was a Donald Trump. Yes, exactly. So anyway, uh, uh, I should before we get started, I should mention that uh, there's kind of a new thing that I am doing for folks. And it's a uh, I guess you could call it a feature, uh, something I'm calling very uh, un, uninterestingly Mike's recommendations. You know, I read a lot of stuff every week and some of it's pretty good. Most of it's not. But I realized that I could just sort of bookmark the things that I thought were best and kind of make that available to anyone who's interested in kind of seeing what opinion pieces and other kind of long form things I thought were worth sharing with the world, I guess, or our little part of the world. And so I'm going to be doing that. And I started doing that this week and it's through Flipboard, but you don't need an account. You just need to click on the link. And so if you're curious about that, I will have the link in the show notes and uh, you know, just let me know what you think. And also, I want to thank our newest sustaining supporters. We have uh, Margaret, David, and Stephanie. Thank you very much. We really appreciate it. Um, as a Patreon supporter, of course, you not only get that second full-length episode every week, you also get ad-free versions of all of our shows, as well as other things at different levels of support. And as always, if you would like all of our bonus content, but you can't afford to financially support the show right now, it's totally not a problem. Just email me, mikeatpoliticsguys.com, and I will get you set up with access to all of the content that we put up. But if you are interested in becoming a supporter, you can just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys and get all that information there. All right. Well, with that out of the way, here we go with our freewheeling uh, episode of the politics guys and we're going to start this week with it's going to be like like coltrane at the the van, village vanguard yeah exactly it's going to be yeah yeah if coltrane had never taken a saxophone lesson <laughs> that's yeah. I think how, it would, how it would be but but anyway so we're going to start with a pardon uh i think this is sort of a uh, fairly expected pardon donald trump pardoned his former national security advisor the man who held the job for a full 22 days uh, michael flynn and you may recall that Flynn actually pleaded guilty 
twice to lying to the FBI, and that's in conjunction with the uh, Russia investigation. And and I think, to me at least, Jay, it comes as no surprise that Donald Trump issued this pardon. And um, I, I, what do you think? I mean, were you surprised at this pardon? No, not not surprised. Uh, you know, there was there was some thought that you know he would may may wait a while to see if uh, you know he would get eventual vindication uh, in in the courts um, as he did at the the original circuit level. Then it went on banc, um, and the on uh, banc um, uh, court reversed um, and sent it back to uh, Judge Judge Sullivan for further proceedings. And Judge Sullivan has just been sitting on this. Um, so I I I think. Trump was willing to wait a while, um, uh, but but at this point, seeing that uh, there is not likely to be any ruling or able to to move that that forward, he just went ahead and did it. So, yeah. and generally speaking, certainly exoneration in a court yeah. is is better in a way than a pardon. But we should point out that a pardon is not an admission of guilt. That's one of these misconceptions about a pardon, actually. And in fact, there's been some, I believe, previous Supreme Court rulings saying that just because you have accepted a pardon does not mean you have admitted any guilt. You're just accepting the pardon. Right. And Who wouldn't. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> exactly. No, take your pardon and yeah, you know what to do with it. But, uh, you know, I think maybe a bigger question is, was pardoning Flynn the right thing to do. If you were in Donald Trump's position, Jay, would you have, would you have pardoned Michael Flynn? Absolutely. And, and why is that? Well, I think if you look back at, at this investigation, there are, there are so many problems with it. Um, and it goes to really the, the fundamental thing that I've been arguing about, right? That my biggest concern is that you had parts of the, the United States law enforcement apparatus and national security apparatus that were sort of weaponized um, against uh, Michael Flynn and and against against Trump in general, Michael Flynn in, in specifically. Um, keep in mind, they did they investigated him for, uh, you know, months sort of leading up to uh, before Trump's inauguration. Then in January had a meeting. The FBI said, look, we've got nothing. We don't think that he's doing anything improper. Uh, at which point, uh, Joe Biden helpfully said, uh, "Hey, how about the Logan Act?" Um, <clears throat> so, you know, and then then there was it was off to the races from there, where they the FBI set up essentially an ambush, uh, going to talk to him, um, uh, not advising him that he was he was uh, uh, under investigation or that he had the right to get counsel, not uh, running channels through the White House counsel as you typically would do, um, and doing this in as they admitted. Hopefully we'll get him to lie, and we can either get him fired or prosecute him for that. Uh, so I, I this this investigation was was really problematic from the beginning. Uh, if this whole thing was premised on Logan Act violation, which, as you and I have talked about a bunch of times, is I don't think ever been successfully prosecuted, and the only time it was unsuccessfully prosecuted was was over 150 years ago. Um, and you know more more to the the point that also you get into the, the strange I've, I've put this challenge and I don't know whether I said this on the show or just yelled it out in the street some point, but <laughs> um, you know, if somebody could, can make the, the point of like, let's walk through the elements of what Michael Flynn is supposed to have done and tell me which evidence piece of evidence fits those elements. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to hear it. And I've, I've never, 
I, to this day, haven't haven't heard it. And, and again, my last point would, would be, look, even the FBI investigators who interviewed him came back saying they thought he told the truth, uh, at least initially. And then they went back and said, well, you know, maybe we can massage that a little bit. So, I mean, for all those reasons, <clears throat> and, and that's sort of the general reasons of justice, I think it's the right thing to do. I think it's also the, the right thing to do uh, uh, almost for the same reason that Gerald Ford pardoned uh, Nixon. And uh, uh, also pardoned uh, people who fled the draft uh, is that if you want some kind of national closure, uh, this is this is the way to do it rather than continuing to prosecute. And and my my concern is and this is the same thing. I, I said the same thing about, you know, Trump's locker up uh, rhetoric and all that. Um, is that you start to descend into the you know banana republic type thing if if the if this is what we do after every administration we continue to prosecute someone uh, the outgoing administration so I, I think it was good on on reasons of of justice and and law uh, for all the reasons that the the uh, panel of the DC Circuit said um, but also uh, for for reasons of, of sort of national closure healing all that sort of thing yeah you know. I don't really buy the argument or don't necessarily buy the argument that this was from the beginning a deep state partisan hit job against Donald Trump. But what I do believe is that prosecutors like big cases and like to make a name for themselves. And this is a pretty big you know, trophy to have on your wall, certainly. And so I think even, you know, it's hard to look at what happened to Michael Flynn as distasteful a person as he is. And I find him extraordinarily distasteful. He was sure. one of those people leading the locker up charges, you know, to chance and right. so forth. But, but you have to put that aside and look at how he was treated. And it seems hard for me to make a case that he wasn't unfairly treated. And just because he might be an icky person doesn't mean that it's okay to, it's okay to do that. And so, yeah. The constitution was written for icky You know, people. exactly, yeah. ex exactly. And so I, the more I thought about this pardon, the more I thought, you know, this is a, this is a reasonable, a reasonable pardon actually. And so I'm, I'm, I, maybe you're surprised about that. I don't know, but I'm, I'm, I'm kind I'm, of. I'm, yeah, I, th I thought you'd come around there. When you and I, I mean, you are, you are generally one who, who believes in justice and due process and 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 all that? So yeah, I'm, yeah. So I mean, I think reaffirmed it was, what I thought you would. It, pretty clearly, it seems to me that Michael Flynn they they were just putting as much pressure as they could on him to get him to flip to other things, and he was he was used, I think, in a in a very uh, disheartening sort of way, to say the least. And so I think this actually does serve the the cause of, of justice, generally speaking. You know, I, I guess the bigger question is pardons that are to come. My sense is that there will be more pardons to come related to these investigations. Some of them may be a little more questionable. We'll have to wait and see about that. But the biggest question is whether or not Donald Trump can pardon himself. And, you know, Jay, I, instead of just reading all the think pieces about this, I said, you know what, I'm actually going to read the Constitution. <laughs> I'm asking just, I, I'm that, oh yeah, that too. But I thought, you know, I'll just go, I'll go to Article 2, Section 2, and it says, he shall have the power to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States, except in cases of impeachment. Now, when I read that, I thought, if I'm reading this as a textualist, this would suggest that there is one bar to pardoning. And that is in cases of impeachment. So meaning that, you know, Congress impeaches the president or anyone else and the Senate convicts, then the president cannot pardon that person. But I don't see anything in there that prevents 
self-pardoning if you're just going by the plain text? Um, again, having just woken up. And <laughs> <laughs> no, my, my, my sense is, has always been, because remember, there was, there was a uh, you know, debate back during the Watergate years. Um, could, could Nixon pardon himself? There was uh, discussions during the, the Bush administration. Could Bush pardon himself? And, you know, because uh, Scooter Libya. So, um, uh, so the question is, has floated around before. And I think the general consensus has always been, no, a president can't pardon himself. But nobody's ever tested it, yeah. right? And never gone before court. I, um, my my sense uh, would be that your your reading makes sense with the you know the, the intent and the reading of the Constitution that the the only remedy against the president is impeachment, um, right. and it also goes it's consistent with the general you know this, and again this is theories that have never really been tested and. Um, but the general idea that, look, a sitting president can't be convicted, right, or can't be uh, charged, you have to impeach him, and then he could be convicted, at which point he's not the sitting president and can't pardon himself anymore. Um, so all that would, would be sort of consistent and seem to make sense. Um, yeah, because the argument I'm thinking is, well, the framers made one clear exception, and the fact that they did make one clear exception suggests that they could have made, they were thinking about exceptions and chose to only make that one and not others. Right. Like for self-pardoning. Right. So, so it would be interesting I, I, I to see that, what this court— a, a sensible reading. Um, my, my guess is I don't think Donald Trump would pardon himself. I don't think um, so either, yeah. yeah. Because he never did anything wrong. Right. I mean, that, I think, you know, if you're if you're Trump, I mean, yeah, to Trump, no. pardoning himself would be whether or not legally it's an admission of guilt uh, to him. Uh, he would sort of view it that way. And he would say, I did. I never did anything wrong. There's no need for me to pardon myself um, and and move forward. So yeah. I, I I don't I don't think he'd do it just for uh, if you want to say legal constitutional reasons, if you want to say to prevent a uh, sticky constitutional presidential question. Um, although I'm not sure, I'm not sure what happens, right? How, how that gets to, um, how that gets to the court, right? He has to pardon himself and then somebody has to try to prosecute him. Right. I, I see what you're so, saying. And at that point he goes and says, Hey, I've been pardoned. Uh, so it, 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 that's how it goes up. And if um, you, if you actually look at the cases against Donald Trump right now, there are like half a dozen that you might consider significant. Almost all of those are actually not federal, but state cases. So he couldn't he couldn't pardon himself for for those. He can only do it for federal right. offenses. Yeah. And so that right. and then there are these crazy theories that, oh, well, he'll invoke the 25th Amendment, make Mike, make Mike Pence president for half an hour to pardon him and then become president or resign. And they're like, wow, what are, what are you what are you smoking? And, you know, that's just that's some crazy stuff. But uh, I think I think so often. And look, you and you and I follow following this a little bit. Um, there are people who write things and, and their job is they have to write so much stuff every week, right? Yep. <laughs> to get paid. Um, we got to show up and talk about stuff. Uh, so sometimes um, you, you got to come up with something. And, and I think sometimes that you get this kind of speculative, well, this is something that could happen, could, you know. Um, and, and Trump sort of enlarges the, the realm of possibilities of stuff that could happen, right? Stuff that you would, you would say would not be think, uh, yeah. under a yeah. you know, typical candidate uh, or president um, suddenly comes, well, you never know. Um, so I think there's some of that uh, going on, too. But no, yeah. I, I do not expect him to pardon himself. You know, an interesting, I was just saying, as we were talking about this, I was thinking one of the most interesting uh, and very sort of Trump-like pardons he could make 
on his way out the door would be pardoning Hillary Clinton. <laughs> yes, would be, I uh, could see him doing that. I think that, and, and that would be, to me, would be wonderful, hilarious. And then she, she would try to refuse the pardon. I'm sure she would. Yeah, that would be, uh, but I can totally see now, if there are any Trump, you know, problem. Trump administration people listening to this, I could just see them scribbling and say, yes, let's, let's do that. That would they're, be they're running. They're running the note into the uh, Oval Office right now. Yeah, no kidding. Oh, well, um, all right, Dad, let, let's move on from presidential pardons and talk about what seems to be almost certainly going to be a presidential transition now that Emily Murphy, the administrator of GSA, actually did ascertain this past week that Joe Biden is the likely winner of the presidential election. And I got to say, Jay, I was uh, pleasantly surprised by Donald Trump's two-tweet uh, announcement about this, where he uh, didn't throw Emily uh, Murphy under the bus. He actually thanked her and uh, was pretty was pretty gracious, I think. I read that statement, and I thought, well, that's like what a normal president or somebody would say. That's very un-Trumpian. Someone suggested maybe Donald Trump didn't write it. I don't know. It came out <laughs> under his Twitter account in any case. And uh, I wanted to get, you know, to start with, I wanted to get your take on were you surprised that Donald Trump essentially not only acquiesced, but said, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to instruct my people to help out with this transition and I'm not going to fight the transition process tooth and nail as a lot of people thought that he might do. No, no, because I, as you remember, I've been predicting uh, this will be the best transition ever. Yep. Um, you know, just <laughs> many people are saying this. Uh, ask anyone. Nobody does transitions better than Donald Trump. Um, I, I think that's what you're going to get. And, I mean, he's going to he's going to fight tooth and nail throughout this, and he will he will continue with the "I was robbed" uh, story going on. But again, I think adopt the. Uh, even even so, even though I'm robbed, I am so very gracious that I'm going to give the nation the, the best transition ever. I, I, I hope I you're right about that. I think that's his motif going forward. I think this is a sign that would point to that direction. And as I said, when we talked about this last week, I really hope you're right about this. It was interesting. I thought this week, Trump, Trump the showman said, you know, yes, I, uh, I have decided whether or not I would be at a Biden inauguration, but I'm not going to tell you now. <laughs> thought, right, well, exactly. Because he wants you to stay tuned. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's in his it's in his blood, basically that sort of thing. Now, uh, moving on to the more uh, to the more substantive elements of the transition, we're starting to see Joe Biden name or at least name people he says he will be naming as his uh, top picks. And I think of these picks, there are three that have, that have sort of taken up a lot of the attention, and that would be uh, Blinken, Secretary of State, Yellen for Treasury, and John Kerry, former presidential candidate, for his special climate envoy. And, you know, to me, it seems like this is the Joe Biden that I expected. We're sort of seeing a, a lot of people from the Obama administration. We're seeing a lot of folks who have the deep experience, not really radical type folks. I mean, right. yeah. what what I'm hearing from the progressive left is, you know, these aren't exactly the folks that we wanted. We'd like to see them be a little more radical. There were plenty of people who were thinking, you know, uh, that for Treasury, we might see Elizabeth Warren. I think Bernie Sanders still thinks he might have a shot at Labor Secretary. And I don't really see that happening. But to me, this is a this is a positive sign that the Biden administration is going to be sort of a center left type of administration, which is exactly what I'd hoped for from it. Well, what do you make of these picks? So, yeah, well, well first, I was going to 
the joke on the, you know, Biden mental acuity, uh, <clears throat> you know, and this this would be unfair, but yes, yeah, so Secretary of State said, give me a Blinken. Um, <laughs> and and uh, they said, what? Who did he say? Well, Blinken must, must be Blinken. Um, no, but um, uh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, uh, generally, I I'm OK with these these picks. Again, they wouldn't have been my first choice as a conservative, obviously, but uh, they are mainstream. Yeah. Um, so I, I, you know, I posted that, uh, and, and, and again, Janet Yellen, um, particularly, uh, is, is I think comforting to me because that was one of my bigger concerns was that, uh, Elizabeth Warren had been sort of, uh, uh, preaching really big changes, uh, to, to, uh, financial regulations that I, I believed could have very much hurt the, hurt the economy, very much undone a lot of, uh, you know, in the American way of life, but um, so, but but Janet Yellen is is not is not that person. Um, she's more of a technocrat. She certainly has the experience. Um, I'm interested in your thoughts on. We had we had a conversation uh, last week, two weeks ago, about uh, you know Judy Shelton, whether she is she would have been too uh, pliant. Um, uh, and and this raises sort of a, a, yeah. a opposite question of, mm-hmm. of well, would the, would the Fed be too too pliant to a a Treasury Secretary who's a former former uh, uh, Fed chief? Yeah, that that that's exactly the question. I the main question I was thinking about, you know, that, that we were talking about that last week, and now we have a situation where it's likely that the the preceding Fed chair is going to be working very closely with the current Fed chair. And that's uh, it's very much like hiring the outgoing boss as the lobbyist for the agency of the, you know, the new boss. Yeah. I I think the difference here is that this would be an issue, more an issue of the treasury being sympathetic to the Fed rather than the opposite, which, so it's not really a Fed independence sort of thing necessarily. It kind of works in the opposite direction here, I think. But, and, and so I think that Yellen is a you know perfectly acceptable pick. I would have liked to have seen her serve a second term as Fed chair, as that's been sort of the tradition. But Donald Trump, uh, I guess he was considering that, but chose not to do that. But yeah, to me, this is a good sign. And I think it's one of the many. Ironically, because she wasn't, he thought he, she wasn't cutting interest, interest rates yeah, fast enough. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. But- but, but but I mean I think I think that this is a good sign. I think that's why markets have reacted so favorably, you know, for a lot of reasons, right? But I guess this also ties into the market sort of situation is the fact that I find it very likely, at least, that Joe Biden is making these uh, announcing these potential picks based on his belief that it's unlikely that he's going to have a Senate majority. And so he needs to work with Mitch McConnell and Senate Republicans to see what will actually get him 51 votes. And that that means it's going to be more moderation in these picks. And I think that's a big part of what we're seeing. Well, and he could have this is one of our topics for later on. I mean, he could also have have read sort of the tea leaves from the election um, that that as much as the progressives certainly helped his campaign and, and he needed them. Uh, uh, the whole progressive socialist uh, type type label did not play well uh, in swing districts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and 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 especially if you know to the extent Georgia is is still up for grabs, um, you know, I think I think the the better the better play for for Biden is uh, uh, is, is moderation, right? Um, but uh, and, and the other the other thing I did you want to say about about Yellen, obviously I, there's there's nothing 
uh, you know, there's no bar to to having a former Fed chief as Treasury Secretary. But I just thought it was it's it's kind of fascinating that this has never happened before. Yeah, I guess you know it, what I mean. It, it's an yeah. interesting play. It's you know, and yeah. sort of it's sort of like you you didn't see it, but then after he does, you're like, well, yeah, that makes perfect yeah, sense. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of kind of court, and that's one. I think one of the big advantages uh, here is that even though the transition was delayed a bit. It's quite possible that nobody has ever been in a better position to make a smooth transition than uh, than Joe Biden is, because, I mean, Best just transition ever. Well, yeah, I mean, but you think about it just four years ago, he was part of the executive branch. Right. Yeah. And he's got his Donald Trump reminds us, reminded us all the time, 47 years of experience. And so uh, under these circumstances, I can't think really of anyone off the top of my head who would be better positioned to kind of smoothly Right. Move He's things. got the Rolodex there. Yeah, That's, exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, I think in terms of the State Department, we knew that whoever uh, Joe Biden was going to pick was going to be much more of an internationalist than anyone that was, you know, that's been in that position in the in the Trump administration. And, and I see that certainly as a good thing. The, the climate envoy pick, Kerry, that's a a lot of people might think that's just sort of a, a name pick. But if you know anything about John Kerry's uh, record over a lot, a lot of years, he actually has been a very, very strong advocate for uh, environment. And he's been involved in pretty much every major environmental piece of legislation or treaty back well uh, really since the early 90s so he's a he's a good pick for that and that does that pick doesn't require senate confirmation so i think that's uh that's a reasonable choice as well there too yeah i have no strong feelings on, on the john yeah. Kerry environment i mean if, if you're going to i mean this is my jaundiced view of the world obviously um <laughs> but look if if we're going to have a climate envoy uh well it might as well be john Kerry. Um, Right. As long as long as as long as we don't have Elizabeth Warren running the running the Treasury, um, uh, which to my mind does real stuff. Um, uh, yeah. Biden or uh, uh, Kerry can go around and, and make all kinds of speeches about the climate and uh, uh, good on him. So. So let's move on. Well, not really move on exactly, Jay, but it, it seems to me that Joe Biden at least is is signaling that he believes that he can work with Mitch McConnell and Republicans in the Senate. And, you know, he does, of course, have all that Senate experience. But it, it occurs to me that the last time Joe Biden was actually in the Senate was 2008. And uh, the Senate of today is very, very different, I would think. And so I, I'm wondering, it seems to me that it's hard for me to imagine Mitch McConnell not trying to obstruct Anything that could potentially be seen as a win for Biden, because I look forward to 2022. And even though Republicans are defending more seats in the Senate, there are probably, by my count, only seven truly competitive races. And they're about evenly split between Democrat and Republican held seats. We still don't know about the Georgia uh, who's going to win between Loeffler and Warnock. But based on past history, it seems likely that in 2022, Republicans, as long as they don't commit any unforced error, are likely to expand on their Senate numbers. And so my question is, then, what incentive does Mitch McConnell have strategic? I mean, party power instead of not good to the American public incentive. Does he have to cooperate on anything whatsoever? And I wanted to get your take on that. Well, some of that, you know, when we we talk about Senate races nationally, but still they're local right um 
So I think part of that, and, and you've, you've probably done the math, obviously, that, that I haven't as far as looking at who's up and who's not and which is competitive and which isn't. And to some extent, we don't know what's competitive until we see who the other candidate is. Um, but but there may be things that you know could be helpful to individual candidates in particular races that McConnell might want to get done. <clears throat> and I think, um, you know, there's there are are some things that have been kind of left on the table um that that could get done um you know one one being infrastructure well for the first being being covid relief the second yeah. being infrastructure uh third being maybe a DACA deal um all all those all those sorts of things that we had talked about that look there's there's room for for a compromise here um and and my sense is uh McConnell, if if I'm him in in some ways, you know, maybe you want to compromise, take those issues off the table, right? Because that, you know, what the Democrats have done, particularly with, say, like DACA and what uh, Pelosi tried on the the COVID bit, um, was was sort of the the holding up for uh, for a better deal, and then use use the issue as uh, against the other side. And I don't think that that really worked, or at least it didn't work all that well. Um, so uh, yeah, my my sense is there's there's going to be room. I don't think he's obviously um, he's not. Mitch McConnell isn't just going to roll over, right? Um, but uh, uh, I, I think there's there's going to be room for for compromise, at least in part, right? On on these sort of um, piece piecemeal. And again, that that's that's the you know the issue. I mean, do we if, if and is is Biden going to be willing to to take a half a loaf, right? Take a half a win on on something like uh, COVID relief that maybe doesn't get all the uh, uh, state relief that he would like, but but still substantially um, injects money in the economy and, and protects vulnerable industries, that sort of thing. Um, I, th- I think he might, and I think there might be enough senators uh, who individually, uh, based on their race, would be willing to go along with that. So you, so you think that Mitch McConnell will be willing to work with Joe Biden as long as Joe Biden kind of puts forth sort of generally moderate type of positions on things? Yeah, well, I think I think it's it's not even so much the moderation bit, but maybe it's the uh, here's the whole package all or nothing bit sure. that, that we've seen. You know what I mean? So if if we're able to, you know, break out pieces and say, look, yeah, we can agree on this, uh, but it doesn't have to be tied to that. Um, we'll, we'll get some stuff done. Yeah. I. I, I wish I wish I were that optimistic. My my sense of things is that uh, we'll we'll have budgets that will get passed and the debt ceiling will be raised and that's uh, and there will be some I guess at some point some small smaller than ideal COVID relief. But aside from that, that's all we're going to get until 2023 because uh, I think Mitch McConnell just like he said you know his main goal was to make Barack Obama a one-term president. I'm I'm fairly certain he wants to do the same thing and believes that his his position is going to be a lot better in 2023 than it will be in 2021 and 2022. And so he's going to obstruct, I would think, he and, and, and the congressional uh, Democrat, or Republicans are gonna, going to obstruct everything possible, except, I think, for uh, Biden executive branch uh, nominations. I think he's going to allow those to go through, but I don't think judicial nominations, I think we're going to see unprecedented obstruction of even district court 
nominate, which usually those go through pretty quickly. You know, it's the, it's the circuit yeah. court. And, but yeah. I think even those are going to slow to an absolute crawl, and we're going to see something that we have not heretofore seen. Uh, that, that's my prediction, unfortunately. Um, yeah, I guess, yeah, we'll just, we'll have to see, right? Um, and my, my sense is judicial nominations will kind of take a, uh, one judge at a time. Um, there was a, a strange Very slowly. Came, Sorry. There was, <laughs> yeah. there was a, a sort of a weird statement that, and uh, that I read this morning that came out from the, the Biden camp about the type of judges he wants to appoint. And it, it was one of these, and I, I don't have it in front of me, um, but it's sort of well, not not judges that will decide the result, but will will understand. You know, will won't rule against the poor and the the you know the uh, the oppressed and all this sort of thing. And it was a right. it was it was a very again sort of you know weird. Uh, you know, we're not going to get judges who are results oriented. We just want judges who come up with the right results. Um, you know what I mean? It was sure. So we'll we'll see what that that means. And again, I I just you know as a constitutional theory, I think that's that's not a very good one, but right. that's well, neither here nor there. I, I hope uh, I hope I'm wrong on all of these counts, and that, that you are right. I rarely I rarely say that, but in this case, absolutely. So, speaking of judges, there was a big uh, a big not really a ruling exactly, but a big uh, uh, I don't know what you call it from the Supreme Court. They actually. <laughs> Well, they granted a request from uh, the Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn and two uh, Orthodox Jewish synagogues to block enforcement of a New York State executive order that restricted attendance at uh, well churches and, and synagogues. Or, yeah, ten or twenty-five, depending on the, the zone. Um, yeah. yeah, and and. The the, the uh, I guess the breakdown of the justices was I won't say it was un- was surprising because it's kind of what you would have expected right now the five most conservative justices were on one side uh, Thomas Alito Gorsuch Kavanaugh and now Barrett and then we saw we saw Chief Justice Roberts with the court's three liberals in the dissent but Roberts' dissent was a little bit different he wrote separately and so uh, essentially. The the ruling right was that was that this is a religious liberty issue and that the majority said well this was a this was a singling out uh, religion right, unfairly discriminates against religious yeah yeah and 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 my take on this is well not so much really because religion it seems to me and I agree with the centers here uh, these these weren't being these churches and synagogues weren't being singled out because. They were religious, but because of the types of activities that went on in this venue, meaning a lot of talking and singing and whatever, you know, the kind of stuff you do at church, basically, which is a lot different than what you do. You probably don't do a lot of singing and chanting when you're at, you know, like Home Depot or something like that. Right. So I think that these. Well, yeah, (laughs) exactly. I think these restrictions were not based on the fact that this was religious, but just the fact of what happened during this sort. So, you know, the same restriction should apply to the bars that do karaoke or something like that, you know. And so to me, that's reasonable. But I wanted to get your take on this. So I I guess the what the, the weird thing is the 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 restrictions were were structured in, in such a way that um there are there are plenty of places now again you mentioned the activity of course we could we could trust these these folks at these churches to maybe you know do the right thing on their own right i mean i i would think um 
uh, and you know, I, I don't know. So many churches have, have become, well, most churches, I would say, uh, become uh, virtual or have done things with uh, social distance. They've figured out a way to do things safely, um, just like restaurants have, just like bars have, just like as uh, I think Gorsuch said, strip clubs have. Um, well, let me let me but before you go further, let me just stop just for a minute right there and say, I think that there are a lot of people, especially on the right, who would say that, no, that's exactly the problem is that we have, we have trusted people to do that and hope that they would make the right decisions. And they clearly haven't in many cases. And that's, that would be fine if it just affected them, but it's, uh, it affects other people who are close to them, just like, you know, hoping that people would do the right thing over the holidays and not get into big gatherings. And we've seen that, you know, millions of Americans decided not to make that decision. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the consequences of that and increased positive cases and increased hospitalizations and increased deaths in the, in the, in the weeks and months to come, which is why many, many people on the left, especially feel that these, these orders, while unfortunate, they have to be issued, do have to be issued in, in, in the name of public safety. Yeah. But, but again, the, the, um, I think that that sort of comes down to the if you're going to say we're going to base this on the activity that you're doing, um, and and base it against houses of war. I guess I guess maybe that my first going back fundamentally, uh, the freedom of religion is the first one, right? It is the the first um, uh, freedom mentioned in the Bill of Rights. Um, it's it's to me. I, I don't know if it was uh, intentional or just uh, weird serendipity or or an act of God that the this you know decision came out on Thanksgiving Day, uh, right? Which which celebrated uh, you know essentially pilgrims who um, did did some stuff crazy crazy stuff that you or I would not consider doing uh, for the way we want to practice our religion, right? Yeah. Um, you know, risk, I'm, I'm going. I'm going to risk my life and and travel across the ocean in a boat that that may or may not make it, and live in a place where there's nobody else except uh, Indians who don't really want me there. And and you know, we have no uh, sense yeah. of how we're going to do this. And, and be, because I'd like to practice a slightly different version of Protestantism, um, right? That's sort of unthinkable to us today. But that's that that's you know one of the basis on which the country was founded, and it's it's in the Constitution and. Look, the the Constitution doesn't say uh, you can't discriminate against religion unless it's it's something uh, really important or unless there's a, a a virus going around. So, and I think that the the uh, the opinion says that it, it says, look, there could be some some reasonable restrictions that you could put uh, on on churches on places of worship, but they have to be. Uh, calibrated, and they have to be in in sync with right. what you're doing in the secular world as well. Yeah, and and this is tougher. I mean, I guess the you know, say if you have, and look, I think you could make a, a good argument that uh, if you have a small, you know, one one room church, um, that's a different situation than if you've got some sort of big mega church that can seat a thousand. And you say, okay, well, we can seat a thousand. Let's, uh, let's have 250 people in here. And every, you could, you do your thing completely socially distant and it would all be fine. Uh, a smaller place may well only be able to accommodate 10 people. Um, but, but the regulations didn't do that. And I think that's, that's sort of the, the piece of that, uh, that the, the court looked but, awry on it. And, and, and you're right, Robert sort of, sort of ducked a little in, in sort of essentially saying that the case is kind of moot. 
Well, I wanted to ask you about that because, you know, right, there was a there was a lot of interesting back and forth between Gorsuch and, and Roberts on this. Got a little snippy, but one of the that I wanted to raise that issue because Roberts seemed to me you could make the case was arguing against what what some would call judicial activism. He's saying, you know, there's not a case here, so we don't need to decide this and we shouldn't get in this. And and Gorsuch basically said, Well, why not? Let's do it. There's no reason we shouldn't. And uh I mean is this an example of conservative judicial activism? No, I, you know, this is, and this is sort of, and I'm going to read exactly what, what Robert says. And he says, um, he says, well, it, it may well be that the restrictions violate the first exercise, the free exercise clause. Uh, not necessary ever for us to rule on that serious and difficult question at this time. Uh, governor might reinstate the, re- the restrictions. Um, this, this is one of those, I, I think the argument is, um, it's capable of repetition, but avoiding review, which is sort of a right. a, a, a uh, exception to standing questions. And and it's very similar to I think the way Roberts ruled in the New York gun case. Right, uh, mm-hmm. New York had had uh, placed some restrictive um, uh, restrictions. You see, it's supposed to just it, it was very, it was yeah it was almost like restrictions. Yeah, it has to be um, in, the gun has to be taken in in various pieces, and it can't be. It was it was essentially exactly. yeah. Yeah, it was and, pretty- then, and then and uh, then the case was appealed, went to the Supreme Court. At that point, then uh, New York backed off and said, "Well, we're not really enforcing this, and we're we're changing it. Um, so there's there's nothing there for you to rule on, and we've mooted the case." And that that's essentially what the, the court held. Um, but I, I think it is there is something to um, being able to lay out uh, sort of sort of black lines that the government can't do this, and and it's one of these. Uh, you know, government can't do this, and then until they get caught, right? And I think so. I think that's yeah. This, this, I think there's a good argument that this is a, um, uh, a uh, capable of repetition but avoiding review uh, type scenario because the governor could could snap back the restrictions tomorrow, and then okay, well, we go through the court again, and well, oh, I'm backing off. Up, oh, cases are down, right? Um, and yet, throughout, you could have a whole course where if someone were so inclined to to simply hassle the religious community, uh, you could you could use that process to do so. Yeah, you know, this is this is a tough one for me because I do respect the fact that when we're talking about a, a fundamental constitutional right that strict scrutiny applies. And so, you know, how compelling is the interest and are these restrictions? Right. Are the are the yeah, how close is that? means ends fit yeah and, yeah and and so those those restrictions that that has to be as narrowly tailored as possible and so when you're looking at you know i would think that the the best thing that could happen would be that new york or the executive order is rewritten in such a way that it's slightly less restrictive and but just still restrictive enough if you yeah, will and, and i think kavanaugh point, points that out where he says look we've had all these other states that have have passed uh, other, you know, some restrictions on on religious gatherings, um, but they've done it with with less of a blunt instrument. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And, and before I move on from this, I got to say that even though I don't agree with Gorsuch on this one, he did have the killer line, and I have to, I have to read it because it's just great. He says he writes, "We may not shelter in place when the Constitution is under attack. Things never go well when we do." And how can you not love that line? I mean, even though I think he exaggerates the severity of an alleged well, attack. I was going to go with, but there was another, another really good he line. He was pretty good in this one. Yeah, you know. Hang I, on. Hang on. I'm pulling <laughs> it up, people. Um, was, um, oh, I'm not going to be able to find it now. That's These okay. We're just going to edit this out. We're going to edit this part out. Something along the, the lines of, of um, 
uh, you know, look, we're the Constitution, uh, you know, doesn't get canceled because of a virus. Right. Um, so we'll move on. I will find it before the end of the show. OK. So, so yeah, let's. Moving on, let's talk a little bit about, well, uh, we, we've we been talking about COVID in certain ways almost throughout this podcast. But, you know, we talked about this a little bit last week, Jay, and that right now we're seeing kind of sort of weird signs. The market uh, broke 30,000 right for the first time, which was pretty, pretty impressive. And and if you look at uh, orders for, I believe it's durable goods are up and companies are looking forward to what seems to be a reasonably, you know, what will be a reasonably robust uh, recovery, not anytime very soon. But if you look ahead, even to the Fed zone analysis, we're, we're almost certain to see uh, uh, the economy bounce back pretty significantly toward the latter part of 2021 and into 2022. But right now, we're really facing some pretty significant challenges right now. We're seeing, you know, uh, extended unemployment benefits will be running out for up to 12 million Americans right after Christmas. Businesses are struggling now with, you know, greater uh, restrictions and shutdowns and things like that. Uh, Donald Trump's, uh, the, sorry, the Trump administration's eviction moratorium expires on December 31st, and so will he issue a new moratorium? And even if he does. What does that mean for uh, what does that mean for renters? Because a moratorium, all that means is that you don't have to pay your rent right now. It's not rent forgiveness. Right. And uh, right now, the one one analysis I've seen is that tenants could owe up to around seventy billion dollars in back rent by the year's end. And where's that going to come from? So we're really dealing with a, a pretty big mess. And in the middle of this, we have Democrats not willing to budge on their COVID relief package of around $2.2 trillion. And Joe Biden saying, yeah, let's stick with that for now. And Republicans, on the other hand, saying, no, we're only willing to go as high as half a trillion dollars. And that's a pretty big difference. And we're not seeing any talks or anything like that. So, Jay, what do you think's going on here? And is there are things going to get really, really bad for renters and for people who are on unemployment uh, before before the Biden administration takes over? Um, you know, I, I guess I, my my thought uh, on that would be that there's going to be a deal. Just I'm not sure when it's going to happen. Um, if the eviction moratorium runs through uh, the end of the year, you know, then you're down to uh, 21 days until uh, Biden could put in a new moratorium. Um, and, and quite honestly, uh, as far as judicial proceedings happen, nothing's going to happen within the 21 days, um, on, on residential evictions. I just don't see that, that happening. Um, me, meaning, meaning, you know, by the time someone, the moratorium, moratorium expires, someone files in court, someone responds at, at that point, Biden's already in office and could issue a new moratorium. Um, if you're inclined to believe that the president has the power to do that, um, which I'm not, which is, which is a different, a different situation, uh, different story, but, um, uh, no, I, I think it's it's going to get worked out. And and if if landlords, you keep in mind, landlords operate in, in a, uh, the economy also. Uh, different ones have different, um, uh, you know, different constraints uh, working against them. Uh, one of the, we talked about this. One of the, the big problems is smaller landlords, right? They may own one or two properties that they've mortgaged, and they own they owe the bank, um, uh, so they have to keep making payments, and they depend on the rental income in order to do so. Um, that right. said, uh, I, in most, in my experience, um, most landlords 
aren't will aren't in any rush to kick out a tenant um, unless they have a new one lined up. Uh, yeah. So so my my sense would be you know I'll, I'll, the vast majority of, of places would say look we'd you know unless there are 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 you know someone they know who can come in and rent and pay uh, I I think they'd be more likely just to make a deal with their their current tenant and you you work out the excess over time or or something like that I think that's probably the best best way to do it rather than a, a national big federal policies you know but but uh, make some of uh, money available through a stimulus or or uh, aid and uh, then let these private parties work it out themselves um, uh, going forward so I mean I, I guess my point here is that this is not a solution. And, you know, let's say you're, let's say, you know, you're, you're a renter and you can't afford to pay your rent. And let's say your rent's just for my math's sake, a thousand dollars a month. And so you can't afford to pay that for seven months. Well, then all of a sudden the moratorium ends and you have a bill for $7,000 and maybe your landlord is willing to work something out with you, but maybe your landlord isn't. And all of a sudden you're, you know, you obviously couldn't pay because you maybe you don't you you lost your job or your hours were cut or whatever and so all of a sudden you go into a situation where you're worse off than ever and so to me the solution to this is is a pretty obvious one and that is that is relief that is well subsidies are relieved either directly to the landlords kind of like the landlord tenant version of the paycheck protection program or giving the relief to the renters so they can pay the landlords. But I mean, the money's got to come from somewhere. And we, we got to remember that there are millions, millions of people here who are really going to be suffering under this. And so I'm not, I guess I'm not as sanguine about the, the prospects of everyone being okay and just assuming that landlords and tenants will work it all out. I think a lot of people are going to be really badly hurt by this if there's not some sort of larger coordinated action on this. So, um, you know, when when the pandemic started, there were there, there was a, a push, and this is what the the Fed did, right? Opened up sort of the money floodgates uh, to the banks and and told them make money available uh, to people. And the the idea was sort of look the the Fed would prop up the banks, the banks would prop up the landlords, the landlords would would cut the tenants a break. Um, and and I don't think anyone ever spelled that policy out in, in, in those words, but that was the idea, right? We get the money um, back out to the banks and give them some cushion to deal with uh, the loans that, that the landlords would have. Um, I, you know, it, is, is everybody going to, is it going to work out for everyone? No. Um, I can I can tell you I, I helped start a program with the uh, Cleveland Metropolitan Bar Association where we are uh, trying to get uh, mediation between uh, landlords and uh, tenants in order to do sort of just just what I talked about, right? That um, everybody just sorts of sort of works something out, and you either extend the lease out uh, by by another so many months, um, uh, adding additional payment in to, to make up, and and uh, or you know, or you come come to some other uh, agreeable solution. Um, but nobody. I mean, I, I guess the idea is, is mass evictions aren't helpful for anybody. They're not right. good for the landlords. They're not good for the tenants. So I, um, I understand there's sort of like in you know there's this you know sort of mindset out there that landlords are just out there waiting to kind of throw people out uh, just because that just because they hate people. But that's really um, a hassle to actually evict someone exactly. and deal yeah. with and all they're, that. They're now. looking at they're looking at paying you know thousands of dollars in attorneys fees. Uh, then they got to go in and spend some money, probably cleaning the place up, and then they got to advertise and try to get somebody else in. So they're they're looking at a, a, a significant sort of upfront hit 
um, you know, for a couple months where they're probably not generating any, any income on that that property. Um, so yeah, there's there's more of a disincentive for people for landlords to evict people than that I think is commonly thought. Yeah, I I'd like to think that I I mean I I think that probably the Trump administration will extend the moratorium. Uh, it would be pretty colossally awful if they didn't. And then the Biden administration will extend it further until something can be worked out. And I hope that something includes at least a certain amount of money, a reasonable amount of money in uh, income, income based means tested rental assistance or whether that goes to landlords or goes directly to people. I mean, that's that's the sort of most uh, that's the kind of stimulus that works best, in fact, because that money gets spent very, very quickly, as opposed to say, you know, last week, remember, we were talking about yeah. uh, student loans. I mean, this It would be way better to put $100 billion into renter assistance than it is to put it into forgiving student loans or something like that. Yeah. I think you would agree with me you're, there. You're, you're, yeah, you're unusually sensible today. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I don't know. It kind of caught me off guard, but but yeah, all right. We But do, do you think that there will be legislation on this before the Biden administration takes over? I, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's going to be before. I mean, my prediction before was that they get it done by election day. Um, I don't, I don't know. Um, I think part of this too is waiting. We would almost be in a better situation either way if we knew what the Senate was going to look like. Right. Because with those two races, I mean, that's a, that's a huge deal because if, and again, I don't think this is going to happen, but it isn't totally improbable that uh, we see both those races go for the Democrats, because even though you can argue that, say, uh, Warnock is a stronger candidate than, than, than Ossoff, it they're kind of running together almost as a, as a team. And I don't think there's going to be a lot of ticket splitting. So it's easy to envision a situation where it goes either way. And all of a sudden, Democrats have effective control of the chamber, and there's the possibility of, even though I don't think it's going to happen, the the filibuster being ended and something really big being pushed through. And that might be, you know, that might be entering in, I think, in a very real way to a lot of calculations, though. Again, I don't see that happening because I don't I don't think that there are the votes, even if that does happen, to end the filibuster. That's my sense of things. Well, no, I agree. It's one thing to say. um you want to do something really big or end the filibuster or, um, you know, when you've got, when you don't have to have the vice president casting the, the tie-breaking vote. Yeah. yeah. Um, and also, I've, this is just my experience. It's really tough to hold a uh, coalition together and you've got to, you've got to hold all 50 all the time. Um, and it's tougher uh, in my experience, to hold that coalition together when you're playing offense as opposed to when you're playing defense. Yeah, yeah, it's great. So I, I would say if if you're if you are Republicans, it's much easier to hold your fifty together to oppose something that uh, uh, you know some some crazy radical plan that uh, Biden's doing, uh, as opposed to if you are the Democrat saying we want uh, you know thirteen trillion dollars in uh, COVID relief. Right. Um, you're you're not going to be able to hold all those fifty senators. And, and and as much as um, I think there's, you know, look, if you you have the numbers, you have the numbers. I think there's going to be reluctance to having uh, Kamala Harris showing up um, like, you know, every other Tuesday <laughs> to, to break a tie. I think there's there's other political reasons where where that's that's after after a while, that's that's not going to be looking good. I mean, you want to um have her in reserve for the for the big ones, but uh, you, you can't go to that well 
all the time, I don't think. And, you know, as we talked about uh, a while ago on the show, that it's a lot easier to say, I'm going to vote to uphold the traditions of the Senate and keep the filibuster as opposed to putting yourself in a situation where you're the swing vote on, uh, you know, a program that might be trillions of dollars, you know, hugely influential and transformative in a better or for, for better or for worse, right? So I think the safe route is to say, no, let's just keep the filibuster so we don't have to take those hard votes and there are going to be right. enough. Well, and I, think, I think that does apply to just the general bargaining also, right? Yeah. Even yeah. if um, even if we're just talking about, well, is the, the new stim- stimulus, is it going to be uh, $2 trillion or is it going to be you know $1.5 trillion? Uh, there may be a lot of folks, moderate Democrats, uh, who would say, look, I, you know, Am I, I? I can. I think we can get the one done. Uh, why should I really stick my neck out and, and make a, a big deal over this extra um, uh, amount? At, at some point, the uh, you know the the rate of return you know sort yeah. of is, is, is diminishing. So my hope, yeah, I mean, my hope here, and what I think is, well, I don't know, maybe I'm a little optimistic here, but of course, we still need to pass the budget. We're operating under continuing resolution, and that's supposed to happen. This month, or sorry, in in December at some point, and my hope is that there will be at least some minor kind of targeted stuff included for COVID as part of that. But I don't even know if that's going to happen. I, the more I think about this, the less optimistic I become, and so I don't necessarily think that anything anything significant is going to happen until probably early February of of twenty twenty one, and that I find that obviously pretty pretty unfortunate i would say so all right well jay we we managed somehow to i, I would say no Mike, i'm going to jump in with something please but keep do. in mind keep in mind that the the new senate is sworn in in january early right right um again we, we're still we we're still don't know about those those uh, two georgia seats but we'll know by the second week of january yeah so i mean the senate the new senate takes office uh, uh you know two three weeks before the, the new president does right so there is there is that also that we're we're closer than you think. Yeah, I, I, I would be surprised, pleasantly surprised if anything happened before February. But uh, again, this is going to be the I hope I'm wrong and you're right show, Jay, I guess, because once again, I hope I'm wrong and you're right about this. So anyway, we, we managed, Jay, to make it through uh, the entire sort of improv <laughs> last yeah. minute version of the show without, I think, you know, doing too, too horribly bad. So. Thank you again, Jay. I really appreciate you joining me. And there's still more that we didn't get a chance to talk about, which we will talk about on the bonus show, like Sidney Powell's cracking uh, massive yes. lawsuit uh, that where, you know, apparently wasn't run through spell check. But we'll talk a little bit about that. We'll talk about election legitimacy. And is this really unprecedented? Let's let's look back at 2016 and see kind of wh- wh- where Democrats were there. Also, we'll talk a little bit more about those Georgia runoff elections and a theory about why Joe Biden seemed to have no coattails in 2020. That's related to COVID. And we'll also help. We'll also take some listener questions as well. And so if you are a supporter, that will be there for you in the uh, in, in your supporters feed by the time. Well, not by the time you hear this, but on Tuesday, actually, that will be there. And if you're not a supporter, you can become one by going to patreon.com slash politics guys. And again, remember, if you can't afford to become a supporter, but you'd like all that bonus content, just send me an email, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get you all set up. 
Also, if you haven't already subscribed to the show, that's a big help. We would appreciate it. And if you leave ratings and reviews, and especially if you share episodes on social media, that makes a big difference. And if you have just a general question, comment, correction, gripe, manifesto you want to share with us, mail at politicsguys.com. And finally, we want a special thanks to our executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Nathan Sosnowski. Thank you very much, guys. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you join us.